So, I mean, what I teach in the book is to ask loud, broken soundtracks three questions. Is it true? Is the thing I'm telling myself true? Number two, is it helpful? When I say it again and again and again, does it push me forward? Does it pull me back? And is it kind? If I said it to a friend, would they still want to be my friend? So a lot of this is just paying attention. My dog is sitting on the bed looking at me, wondering why I keep talking into the microphone, trying to do this introduction over and over again. Hello, everybody. It's Paul Ollinger. Welcome back to Crazy Money. Happy New Year 2022. Yes, this is our first episode of the year. And I'm excited for 2022. I feel like good things are going to happen, despite the fact that it started off on a bit of a bumpy, bumpy road. Two years into COVID, we get you know a new surprise every few months. Omicron is presenting us with infinite opportunities, it seems, to decide how we're going to deal with things that are outside of our control. And that is very much in line with the theme of today's show, which is overthinking. And it is a conversation with a guy named John Acuff, who is a New York Times bestselling author of seven books, including his most recent soundtracks, The Surprising Solution to Overthinking. Now, this is the second episode on overthinking in the past two months. You will recall that in November, we talked to Ethan Cross, Dr. Ethan Cross, professor of psychology at the University of Michigan and author of the book Chatter, which is all about those voices in our head as well. That is a bit more of a of an academic research-oriented conversation. John's is also research-oriented, but it's also anecdotal, and it is helpful to where we bump into this overthinking in our daily lives and what we can do about it. This problem of overthinking goes back thousands of years to the beginning of humanity. It seems that Whichever of our ancestors survived the attacks of saber-toothed tigers had brains that were quite active to the point where they could think themselves into a corner of a dark room and stay there all day. Overthinking comes up in Shakespeare. He says, there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. It shows up in Buddhism a lot. One quote I ran across online says, with our thoughts, we make the world, which Buddha may or may not have said, but it's definitely available crocheted on a throw pillow on Etsy.com. So even if it's not a real Buddha quote, it's very much in line with being aware of your thoughts and allowing to let those thoughts go. And John talks about this a lot in his book. I think that if you want to get to the next level of performance, of happiness, of contentment in your life, we have to learn how to let go of negative thoughts of thoughts that keep us in our place, of thoughts that don't allow us to dream big dreams or to enjoy a nice walk on a sunny day. And I think that the concept of soundtracks that John presents in his book is a great way to think about it. These are ways of thinking that have gotten drilled into our brains, that have grooved themselves into our neural pathways, and that have to be recognized to be broken. Let me tell you a little bit more about John Acuff. Business Magazine, Inc. has called John one of the top 100 leadership speakers in the world. He's spoken to hundreds of thousands of people at conferences, colleges, and companies all over the world, including FedEx, Nissan, Microsoft, Chick-fil-A, Nokia, and Comedy Central. His writing has been translated into more than a dozen languages and has appeared in Reader's Digest, Fast Company, the Harvard Business Review, and Time Magazine. He lives outside of Nashville with his family that he talks about. And in this conversation, we cover the very important conversational topics of 90s power pop, specifically Counting Crows, Marcy Playground, and Fastball. Oh, and Jimmy Eat World. We talk about parenting and how we can recognize and help our children recognize their own broken soundtracks in their thinking. We talk about the fallacy of New Year's resolutions, career reinvention, and rolling with our mistakes. This is John Acuff. Questions, concerns, anything before we jump into it? Nah. I mean, you're a pro. I'm no LL Cool J, but I think this is going to be a pretty good interview. Well, you've got some pretty good references in your book, so we'll uh, we'll, we'll go see. there. And we'll let's see. try to make it as conversational as possible. Totally. My friends tell me that I over-prepare for these interviews. so That's rare because I think the laziest thing I hear from podcasters, and I have a podcast too, is... Well, I didn't prepare because I like it to be organic. Just say you're lazy. Don't like <laughs> it's such a lie because you get to look noble. I want it to be organic, right. but you also didn't prepare. It's such anytime somebody says that to me, like, oh, here we go. All right, go. we're going to leave that in. That's where we start today. It's John true. Acuff. This is John Acuff, ladies and gentlemen. I'll do your introduction separately. We're already starting. It's Paul Ollinger with Crazy Money. Welcome to Crazy Money, John. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. I've known about you for a long time. I finally got you to join us here, and I'm glad we did. You tell a lot of stories in your new book, well, your relatively new book, Soundtracks, The Surprising Solution to Overthinking. I want to know what it was like when you got the life-changing opportunity to open for Dolly Parton at the legendary Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. I got it through the way everybody gets these things. I got it through my dentist. Um, obviously. Um, so that's, I need a better dentist, dude. Yeah, you do. (laughs) I am the least famous person that goes to my dentist. It is really like everybody there is like super famous. And then me, I have the common man's mouth. I think is what they call it in the dental industry. And so, yeah, I had spoken at a number of dental events and my friend who's my dentist is good friends with Dolly Parton. And he puts on this charity event and he's like, Hey, do you want to come do this event. Uh, Dolly Parton will be there. It's at the Ryman. I was like, yeah, do I have to walk through fire? Cause I'll walk through fire to get to that one. It was terrifying. Cause they don't give me like the person I am like, which is like, I did two 10 minute comedy kind of sets, a green room. So I just paced backstage, right. nowhere to go. You won't go on until like 10. I got there at like four. So right, I, for right. six hours, I was just perched on the side of the stage just so <laughs> nervous and excited. And and so it was, the funny thing was during the middle of it. So I do my first set. I do my second set. The drummer um, for Leonard Skinner comes up in the middle of my bit. And he's like, Hey, you're doing a great job. And I was like, I'm, I'm doing it right now. Like, yeah. uh, like he came from the side of me. Like, and I was like, is the drummer from Leonard Skinner shaking my hand right now while I try not to pass out at the Ryman. So it was, it was just a blast. I had a really fun night. Well, let's talk about how that's relevant to your book. Did you have people in your brain? The people in your brain is what your book is all about, really, right? So it's the people that live in our brain and tell us all kinds of crazy stuff that isn't productive. Did those people tell you positive things when you got that opportunity? I think what's interesting is that there's the people in your brain, but there's also the you in your brain. Sometimes we tell ourselves these stories. I call a soundtrack just a repetitive thought because it's this fear that's over aggressive. So it's going, whoa, that could be terrible. Be careful. We better stay a thousand miles from that. One of my favorite examples about fear, I worked with this guy named Ted at this big company. And he said, you know, the CEO of our company wants us to explore. And it was a founder of this company, this whole area with our marketing, like a soccer field. But what happens is when he describes the soccer field to you, the CEO, the CEO doesn't want to go over the edge. So he draws it a little smaller. And then when the CEO tells the vice president about the field, they draw it a little small, a little smaller, a little smaller. Till by the time it gets to my level, it's a postage stamp because everybody's drawing the boundaries. So what happens with fear or overthinking is you keep drawing the boundaries smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until all you've got to play is a postage stamp. And so for me, a lot of my life has been about expanding past that postage stamp and going, okay, I think I can try this. I don't know how it's going to go, but I've prepared and then maybe I'll fail at it. Maybe I'll bomb. But I kind of legitimately believe it'll either be a success or a story. Like I'm either going to kill it. It's going to be a success or I'm going to use it as a story to encourage other people like, oh, here's this thing I blew up. So if the Dolly Parton thing had not gone well, it would have been in the next book as a like, and here's how like, (laughs) here's how I didn't do it as well as I wanted to. So That's kind of my mentality with moments like that. One of the best parts about being an author must be that if you blow something up, it's an opportunity to share a lesson. A hundred percent, dude. Like I was speaking, I was in Atlanta at the Gwinnett Center and I put this in the book and during this speech, a tortoise that I'd written in as a joke started to, to urinate during the talk. And I was like, yes, like I knew this was about to be gold. Like I was going to ride the wave of this forever. And it takes a little while. Sometimes if it's a really deep bruise, I'm not ready to talk about it yet. You know, like I got to process it yet. They say right from your um, scars, not your wounds. And so I think there's this smart kind of like, am I ready to write about that yet? But that's how I think about it as an author. I was a public speaker of, I spoke at the FedEx corporate headquarters and they ordered copies of one of my books for everybody, which is awesome. And my publisher sent me the email with the tracking link and I clicked on the tracking link and it was a UPS tracking link. And so I UPS books to the FedEx global headquarters. So like a dude in a brown truck had to pull up to the security guard at FedEx and go, hey, I got some John Anka books. He's a business expert, clearly. Where should I put them? I'm not familiar with your campus. And that was one like, I was frustrated. I fixed it the next time. The next time I spoke there, I fixed it. But I was like, this is a really relatable scenario. I'm going to share that 
from the stage. And now yeah. I share that story and it's relatable and people enjoy that story and I enjoy telling it. So that's one of the ways I think you can redeem parts of your story. I was playing golf when I was a salesperson at Yahoo. I was playing golf with the head of digital marketing at Pepsi. And at the turn, guess what I ordered? You got a Coke? A Diet Coke. That's right. Oh, oh boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> and my manager was with me and he just looked at me and goes, Ollinger, you're an idiot. What are you doing? Yeah. And I was like, oh, right. I forgot who I was with. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, that feels like something I might, I wouldn't be like, I'm just pouring it out. I just don't want somebody to drink it. You know, like I was just trying to get rid of one, one less Diet Coke in the world. All right. Before we talk about soundtracks and how they can be negative, let's talk about your favorite soundtrack ever. Well, I'll give you some prompts here. First of all, the Say Anything soundtrack the soundtrack to Hamilton or the soundtrack to The Graduate? What's your favorite of those three soundtracks? I think The Graduate. I think The Graduate. That's a quality choice. My favorite score or soundtrack of all time is the Harry Potter soundtracks. Like I write oh, yeah? more books to that than anything else. John Williams. I love John Williams score. And so that I can. Because there's no words. No words. There's so much science about if you write to words, mm -hmm. it's harder to write. Like that's Completely. so for me, like ambient music, like Icelandic composer, who, like <laughs> who, you know, right. Or like some guy who writes about how Copenhagen feels at night. And it's just, it's all like instrumental. I'll write to that. But yeah, graduate definitely for like a moment that's stuck. Right. Okay. Not Yanni at the Acropolis. That's not what you write to. That's in the mix. Definitely. Right. Okay. I love Yanni. I, I like to think that he had a small boost in sales and they can't explain it. Um, <laughs> that, that, at, Based on your vote. Yeah, at team Yanni or whatever headquarters, because I know he has a beautiful headquarters that was like somebody, an intern, a social media intern was like, I don't know what to tell you, Mr. Yanni, um, but like we saw an uptick. Somebody must have written about how great the Live at the Acropolis is. And it was me. That's right. Okay, why are the soundtracks in our head so often negative? Well, I think part of it's how we're wired. Your brain does a couple of things that aren't helpful. It lies about your memory. It misremembers things constantly. Why? What does that mean? How does that happen? So there's been studies. Malcolm Gladwell did a, a multi-series part on this um, on his podcast about Brian Williams specifically, who Brian Williams got in trouble for saying- Free Brian Williams. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he was on a helicopter. And there's been all these studies where people will misremember where they were when the challenger happened. And so sometimes it's what they call a flashbulb memory. The memory is so big, so loud- that it kind of distorts your, you know, what you remember about it. And then there's studies where like one of the things we put in the book is that we don't even have English word for the opposite of trauma. There's no antonym that we have for the word trauma. That means you're at the grocery store and a positive, overwhelming, joyful moment hits you like a wave from five years ago. But we definitely have that with negative moments. Like I got reminded of a, a surprise party I ruined the other day and, and it happened 19 years ago. My brain was like, remember that time you ruined Tara's husband's surprise party? Oh, that was terrible. You want to think about that a little bit? I was like, where did that come from? So we tend to skew negative. We misremember what really happened, but it's like anything else. Like I've never met somebody who accidentally got in shape. Like I've never met somebody who said, yeah, I, I was binge watching Netflix. I looked up and I was doing burpees. I don't even remember doing that. Or I was married. We never made time for each other. We let it happen organically. And we ended up having a really strong marriage that is so great. Like nothing good happens accidentally. And so it's the same with your thoughts. That The way I say it, the shorthand is fear comes free, hope takes work. And so negativity will find you. Fear will find you. To be positive on purpose takes a lot of work. And I'm actually a very negative person by nature. I'm a very melancholy personality. I always say like, I'm wired very counting crows for like the older audience members. <laughs> Wait, older? What are you talking about? Well, dude, if I say that to a group of college students, they're like, I don't, were they on One Tree Hill? Like, I can't, there's certain right, references right. that I'm like, I was on a podcast, dude. They were definitely the, on Dawson's Creek at some point that, you know. Yeah, I've heard them and Paula Cole. <laughs> I don't want to wait. That was the jam. Yeah. Where have so all the on, cowboys gone, my friend? They, who knows? Who knows? I was on a podcast with somebody that I thought was a peer. And in the interview, she said, John, one of the things that I like about you is your dad jokes. And I realized, oh, no, this person is like 26. And I am half dead to a 26-year-old. Right, like when, right. when I was 26 and I met somebody 45, I'd be like, whoa, are you getting enough calcium for your bones? So my references, I have to update. I'll be honest with you. I actually looked up Paula Cole the other day because I couldn't remember that song that she sang. And yeah, it was, yeah. Was that was like, a oh, jam. People that, loved it. That's exactly right. All right, well, we were talking about why these things are negative. Here are some of the common soundtracks that play in my head. 
Let's hear him. I'm not worthy. The world isn't fair. Why did Leah Cornejo break up with me in 10th grade? 10th grade? How long did you guys date? A long time, like three or four weeks. I mean, yeah, you know, that, that's like nine years in high school years. Was. That's nine that's years right. in high school years. Yeah. Well, the, I'm not worthy. I still haven't met anybody that goes, I'm perfect. I'm enough. We just wrote a book about soundtracks for teenagers because so many parents came out of the woodwork mm. and said, hey, how do I teach this to my teen? And so my daughters and I, I have a sophomore in high school daughter and a, a daughter that's graduating and going to college next year, wrote a book about that. And part of what is that book out, that, by the way, I haven't seen no, it. It doesn't come out until September. Oh, that is a fantastic no. idea, especially with all the anxiety and social media. Oh, the last two years stuff. has crushed teenagers even more. Like life was already hard in the last two years. But so 10 years ago, when I would speak to high school camps, I would ask students, write down your thoughts. Like, what are you thinking? And they'd put them on pieces of paper and turn them in anonymously. And I have thousands and thousands of those in boxes on my shelf. And the most common word in all of them is the word enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not popular enough. I'm not skinny enough. And so I think it's a very human thing to have soundtracks like that. Like, I'm not worthy. I'm not enough. And the problem is we don't have a common language for it. So we think we're the only one. That was what was crazy. I commissioned a research study with a PhD named Mike Peasley. And we asked 10,000 Is that Mike Peasley, PhD? PhD, yeah. He, yeah. I, I, I hear he's, I hear he's very legitimate with the PhD. I'm talking to him this afternoon <laughs> about this next book. And 99.5% of people said they overthink. So it's one of those weird universal things that we all think we're the only ones that does it. Um, mm. But you find out, no, everyone does it. So because of the way our brains evolve, we're thinking all the time. Most of our thinking is negative thinking. And you make a very interesting point that most people will say to themselves, and if they're not actively saying, reciting positive affirmations, they are passively repeating to themselves affirmations that are almost always negative. Yeah. And they would say things that are far more cruel or unfair than they would say to people that they actually don't like. Oh, yeah. If you called somebody up and were like, hey, I just need you to know that <laughs> that teacher in the eighth grade, that teacher in the eighth grade that said you weren't a good leader, she still believes that. And now that you're 34 and you just got a promotion at work, it's going to fail. Right. I just needed you yeah. to remember that. You would be like, what kind of monster <laughs> remembers something in the eighth grade and then tells me about it in my mid 30s? It goes, hey, remember? Or like, but that's what we do with ourselves all the time. And we accept it. That's part of the problem is we accept it. We're so used to it. That's why I use the phrase soundtracks for the metaphor is that a soundtrack has the power to change a moment. And you usually don't even notice what it's done to a film. And it's the same with our lives. You say our brains don't know the difference between actual and real trauma. Yeah. Yeah. That study was crazy. So the study that you're mentioning specifically was at the University of Michigan and they took participants and they, they knew it was a study. Like they had volunteered to be part of the study and just the thought of social rejection triggered the same opioid release in the body as getting hit in the face by a brick. So like getting hit in the face by a brick or having social rejection, your body was like, you know what? Let's dump some opioids into the system right now. Let's get crazy up in here because we got to protect ourselves. That's part of the reason your body's not good at that is that just the thought of rejection or just when a parent says to a teenager, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. It is a big deal because the body has told them not having a spot to sit at the high school table is the biggest deal of all time. Here's all the chemicals to prove it. Here's all the pressure to prove it. So that's another one of those things where once you're aware of it, you can start to do something about it. But if you're not aware of it, you just kind of keep moving along going, okay, this doesn't work well for me. I don't enjoy this. I wish I had a different way to do this. And so that's what's been fun about the book is to get people to pause and go, wait a second. I might not be speaking to myself well, or wait a second, I get to choose my thoughts. What could I do if I actually did that? I could really change my life. I want to get to that because, okay, so what do we do is the logical place where this conversation goes. But while we're on the topic of teenagers, there's a lot of parents who listen to this podcast. What do you say to your kid or how do you listen to them actively to understand what soundtracks are playing in their heads and try to help them cope with those thoughts? Well, one of the best things you can do as a parent is help them notice the soundtracks. I'll give you an example. So we put this story in the new book, which I can't wait. I can't wait for parents to plug into this one. But we were at a swim meet. I was volunteering because I, I can't stop serving. People say that about me. They're like, that guy, servant <laughs> leader, volunteer. Give him a stopwatch and some yeah, sunblock. Exactly, yeah, that's what I was doing. So I was timing a swim meet. 
And the swimmer from the other team gets out of the pool and she says to her mom, which as soon as she gets out, I'm the worst swimmer. I'm the slowest swimmer on the team. I'll never be good at swimming. And she walks away. And my wife and I kind of look at each other and go, oh, those are just some broken soundtracks because it's part of our family nomenclature now. So in that moment, that parent can go, wait a second, wait a second. Those are just some broken soundtracks. We can do something about that. So if my Mm. daughter says, say my high school sophomore daughter says, I'll never be good at geometry. We know in our house that absolutes are a sign of a broken soundtrack. Broken soundtracks always travel with absolutes. I'm the only one who doesn't have a phone. I'm the only one who didn't get invited to the party. I'll never learn this subject. I'll never pass the ACT in the way, the score I want, whatever. And so part of your job as a parent is to go, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. I think that might be a broken soundtrack. Let's talk about that for a second so that you kind of reflect back to your kid. Hey, and then another thing is you share some of yours. I think parents sometimes think we have to have it all together, which isolates the kid because now the kid is the only one that thinks, oh, man, I don't have it all together. My parents must have it all together. So sometimes just going, hey, let's talk about our soundtracks like or on the positive side going, what are the soundtracks our family really leans into? Like one of our small soundtracks as a family, which isn't big, is we don't show up hungry. That's the thing we say. We don't show up hungry. What does that mean? It's a micro soundtrack for a macro principle. The macro principle is we're considerate of others. So the micro is when we go on a road trip, if we're going to stay at your house that night, we don't show up and go, we're hungry. We're ready for dinner. (laughs) Unless you've said we would love to have dinner when you get here, we will stop an hour before we get there and eat at a Chick-fil-A so that when we come, we don't show up hungry because that's about going, how can we serve and and be considerate of this person? So part of it is as a family going, what are the soundtracks we want to have that are positive? And sometimes we've inherited negative ones from our family. I was on a podcast with a guy named Steven Scoggins and he said growing up, one of his soundtracks in his family was Scoggins don't get ahead. Scoggins get by. That was something his dad said over and over and over again. So then when he grows his family, he has to do the work of going, you know what? That's not coming down another generation. That's not going to be a soundtrack I'm going to. So sometimes as a parent, it's about retiring the ones that maybe you grew up with that aren't healthy. Did you have any that you had to retire from your family? I mean, I would say that I have personal ones. Like I've misinterpreted like success and faith. So I, you know, grew up in the church, pastor's kid. I would say that for me, I have some broken soundtracks around being successful as a Christian. They're like, oh no, like you should always, like you should be a victim or a martyr, like versus going, wow, I've got this gift to steward. I want to steward it to the best of my abilities. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to like, I'm going to lean into that. and I'm going to make it something big, like, all right. Like, I wouldn't say I inherited that from my family. I would say that I believed that growing up. And that's one that I've had to say, you know what? Wait a second. Let me examine that. Is that helping me? Is that something that I want to carry forward? Where did that come from? How do I deal with it? If I'm hearing you, you're saying that some people of faith or that some churches or institutions want you to believe that worldly success, professional success is not in keeping with the life of faith. Totally. So I'll give you an example. I live in Nashville and like 90% of the population here are musicians. The other 10% are bachelorette parties. Um, that's kind of our, that's our demographic makeup. Um, it's weird to meet people from Atlanta who haven't moved here yet. When you said you were from Atlanta, I was like, I guess you're packing the moving truck now, but maybe later. No, that's Los um, Angeles you're thinking of. Not Atlanta. Oh yeah. And yeah. Los Angeles and Chicago. And so I had a musician say to me, if you're a Christian musician and you buy a $75,000 Suburban, people go, good for you. Family car, good for you. If you buy a $75,000 BMW, they say, Jesus rode a donkey. Like, do you really need something right, that nice? Right, yeah, and yeah. so same exact cost, different perception, different level of judgment. So that's what I mean is that there can be some sense, which is weird because then you read like parables where the landowner goes, hey, here's five talents and the guy doubles them and there's a party. It's not, right. yeah, he yeah. gets five talents and goes, oh, you're like, you should be ashamed that you were successful. So, and the third guy gets thrown into the alley and beaten. Cause he hit it. Cause like he hit he, it. Yeah. And wouldn't you have done the same thing? It already says that he believes that the master oh, he's a thief. Yeah, reaped he's like, where he did not sow. So yeah, it's like, yeah. I'm not going to lose this cat's money. What am I supposed yeah. to do here? That was about a lack of relationship. He didn't really know how good the person that gave him the money was. So for me, that's been one that I've had to kind of in my own life go, wait a second. Am I self-sabotaging right. because I have a broken belief about success? While I have your attention, I want to say hello and welcome to the new members of the Crazy Money Listeners Group on Facebook. 
This is a real group on that there Facebook platform where you can connect with other Crazy Money listeners. You can say hello to me. You can also tell me what kind of guests you'd like to see coming up on the show in 2022. We are working on our slate of guests for the new year, so by all means, offer your input. The new members are Adya Tawari, Caroline Sledge-Smith. Hello, Caroline. Joyce Ann Almeida-Yara. Thank you so much for your interest. Thanks for joining and I look forward to hearing from you. If you want to shoot me a note, you can do that via email at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Lastly, allow me to promote a couple of comedy shows I have coming up. This coming weekend, February 13th through 15th, I will be at the Comedy Catch in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Very cool little town. Glad I get to spend some time there. Comedy Catch this weekend, February 13th through 15th, opening for Etta May. I know you'll have a good time. Come on out. Also, I'll be headlining the Venice West in Venice, California. That would be Los Angeles, the west side of Los Angeles on February 3rd at the Venice West. We'll have some other great comics on that show. By all means, grab yourself some tickets and come on out. Now back to Mr. Acuff. You don't write about this in your book, but it seems to me right now that there's a lot of societal soundtracks that are being written that want people to believe that anybody who's successful has arrived at financial success through ill-gotten means. That has nothing to do with religion from what I'm seeing. Oh, yeah, 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 totally. In the last few years. It's just this sort of thing where it's like, oh, well, anybody, and it goes back to what you were saying about the Scoggins, that they don't get ahead, they get by. I think there's a lot of people who just think, you know, anybody who's doing better than getting by is either privileged due to historical issues or they're cheating somebody else in the process. And that is absolutely counterproductive. It is absolutely the thing that will maintain inequality in our world. And it's completely untrue. Is there anything we can do about societal soundtracks besides just living the best life we can live? Yeah. I mean, I would call that like the must be nice soundtracks where somebody goes, oh, must be nice. There's a big house, must be nice. There's this great sense of shame, great sense of guilt. So, I mean, what I teach in the book is to ask loud, broken soundtracks, three questions. Is it true? Is the thing I'm telling myself true? Number two, is it helpful? When I say it again and again and again, does it push me forward? Does it pull me back? And is it kind? If I said it to a friend, would they still want to be my friend? So a lot of this is just paying attention. And so here's a really simple way to kind of ferret out some broken soundtracks. Let's say around money. So write down a goal, write down a money goal, write down a success goal, financial goal, whatever, write down, okay, I want to retire with a million dollars. I want to own my own house. I want to own a beach house. Like I want to pay for my kid's college before they even go to college, whatever, write down a goal and then listen to your first thoughts. Listen to your reaction because your reaction is an education. Every reaction is an education. So if your first thought is people like me don't get to do that, or other people are more successful because they've got breaks that I haven't had. Like if you hear all these things that aren't encouraging, ask those questions. Is that true? Is it true that, you know, I had a friend whose mom used to say, anytime she saw a big house, she'd say, they must be drug dealers. They must be dealing (laughs) drugs. That was her. And you go, is that true? Like everyone, every nice house in Buckhead is drug dealers. A lot of drugs, a lot of drugs. Like all of them, like like. Is that true? No, it's not true. Is it helpful? When you tell yourself that, does it make you want to work harder? Does it make you go, oh, I've got to get out there. I got to do my thing. I got to, you know, I got to get going. No. Is it kind? No, of course not. It's not kind to yourself. It's certainly not kind to other people for you to be like, look at all these drug dealers. Look at all, you know. So for me that, you know, it's about, okay, what do I have that's broken? And then how do I make sure I can retire it? But yeah, there's a ton of soundtracks around money. Money is a really emotional thing for a lot of people. And there's a ton of soundtracks around it. There's also soundtracks around work. And you tell some good anecdotes about how you had to break some soundtracks around your dual roles as a professional and as a dad, that you would beat yourself up when it was time to go work. And your wife, I believe, called you out on this, correct? A hundred percent. Eventually it'll just be a book called like, and then Jenny said, because I mean, (laughs) she is a genius. The story you're referring to, I went from zero business travel days to like 80 a year because I used to be a corporate copywriter. I worked in Atlanta for companies like Auto Trader and Home Depot and loved it, but I didn't do business travel then. I was a corporate copywriter. I was in a cubicle. And then I became a public speaker and an author. And all of a sudden I got to go speak at all these fun companies and I was traveling more and I had this guilt about traveling. 
And I would do these big, long goodbyes. Like, I'm so sorry, kids. Like, you know, light a candle for me in the window. Like, <laughs> I'll be home in four sleeps. Like, right, four yeah, sleeps. Yeah. And finally, my wife pulled me aside and was like, you feel guilty and you're asking them to hold your guilt. Yeah. She said, they don't even know to be sad. You're teaching them to be sad. And what's interesting is our brains have something called mirror neurons, where we mirror the emotions of other people. So what I was doing is taking a perfectly happy kid and going, Hey, I know you don't know to be sad about a dad traveling, but I'm going to teach you how to be sad and really stir you up emotionally. And then I'm going to leave, which is great for your mom. Get him crying and then leave. See you later. And so she put on some Gordon Lightfoot, just, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And it's, it's not likely, but dad could drown on this. I could die. Yeah. Yeah, Like I don't, it's not likely (laughs) I'm going to have a life vest just in case we crash into a lake. (laughs) And so my wife really helped me rewrite it and said, you know, we got to celebrate when you leave. This is your dream. Like, and the other thing that's interesting is if you do that with your kids, that kind of attitude, you spend 18 years telling your kids work sucks. And then you're surprised they don't want to get a job at 22. So you've demonized work for 18 years. We're like, oh, I hate my job. It's taking me away from my family. And then you're like, why don't they want to rush to a job? It's so weird that they're not eager to get a job right out of college. Uh-huh, that's interesting. So for me, rewriting that, the simple soundtrack became, I don't have room for shame in my suitcase. I'm going to San Francisco tomorrow. I've got a trip to San Francisco tomorrow to speak to an awesome client. I can't wait. I'm going to not pack shame for that. I'm going to go do my job and crush that experience and then come home to my family and get to be a great dad. And so that's the tension. And indeed, half of what you were doing was modeling exactly what I think we should be doing for our kids is showing them that you were doing the job that you long dreamed of doing. And you even had some soundtracks telling you, you're just a copywriter. You don't deserve to be able to be a New York Times bestseller who people will pay a lot of money to speak at our events, right? There's survivor's guilt. Like anytime you make it out of a situation, I think survivor's guilt can be a soundtrack. You go, why, why do I get to do this? What is this? You know, and you start to, again, self-sabotage the fun thing you get to do versus going like, I want my kids to love their jobs because I've given them an example of that's possible. When somebody says to me, what are you going to do when you retire? I still want to be speaking and writing. I don't want to build a life I have to escape from in retirement. Like, I love this. I think I'll do less of it, maybe. Like, maybe when I'm in my 60s and 70s, and I'll do less of it. But I don't see this seismic shift where it's like, and now I have a golf cart. Now I live in 30A. (laughs) Now, like that. No, I love what I get to do. And I want that attitude to be the one that my kids pick up and go, oh, it takes a ton of hard work. Like this morning, I had a 6.15 a.m. call time for an event. So I had a virtual event. There's an international company, 6.15 a.m. I never got up that early when I had a day job. But I work way harder at this because I love it. That's what I want my kids to learn. Yeah. Do you buy the notion that if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life? No, I think that's garbage. I think that's garbage. Because you work. Like, I'm a big believer in going, it's always going to be challenging. There's always going to be parts you don't love. I don't like that we've told this next generation, always follow your heart, always follow your your passion. Because what they sometimes hear is, if it doesn't feel that way always, it's the wrong thing. I heard another speaker say, if you don't love 90% of what it takes to be in your job, you're in the wrong industry. And I thought that's garbage. 90%. So you live in Atlanta. There are people in Atlanta that have a four-hour week commute. Never mind like 90% of their job is amazing. No one on 400 driving down to Sandy, you know, wherever Home Depot corporate is like, I love this traffic on 285. This is my dream. So no, I think every job has challenging parts. Every goal has challenging parts. I think you can add fun to those things that are challenging. I think you can be deliberate about reframing those things that are challenging. I think it's actually a really, really healthy thing to look at something you care about and go, what am I willing to put up with? Because that's a good sign. I love this thing. I will do missed flights. I will do delayed flights. I will do a La Quinta in the Milwaukee airport, whatever. I will drag myself across this country because I get to spend a half hour on stage encouraging people, equipping people like all day, dude. I don't know anyone that's like missing a connection in Denver. That's one of my favorite things to do is like to sprint and be sweaty and have a suit on and miss my connection. I love it. Like, but I'm willing to do that because it ends with me on stage. I'll do that all day. I 100% agree with you on that because I used to be in the corporate world. And if I got put in anything less than a Weston, I'd have thrown a fit, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because that's where my points were, man. Because I was somebody <laughs> I was somebody at a Starwood before Marriott bought everything. I was recently staying in a flea bag hotel to do comedy. And yeah. I was like, yeah. is there Wi-Fi? Yes or no? Are there bed bugs? No. I'm good. 
Yeah, I'm good because yeah, exactly. I was doing what I wanted to do. I was there for the right yes. reasons, and it and it matters, man. It matters a hundred percent. Like totally. now, when we travel as a family, I don't want to stay in that same hotel. But when you're on the grind, you love that. Like you're like, let's go. Like this Who is. Who cares? Let's worry about what yeah. matters, not about the quality yeah. of the jurt where I'm staying doing the thing. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk again about what matters here. What G love and special sauce lyrics did you have engraved on your Zippo lighter, and why? All I have on mine, the one I have is the best things in life. Why do you have that? What is it there to remind you of? So I feel like everybody in college, at least in my college age, discovered G-Love and were like, I'm not into jazz, but I do like G-Love. Like there was this element of like, I do like this guy that I think he has an upright bass in his band. (laughs) So like we all went to a bunch of G-Love concerts. And for me as a writer, the right line I'll remember forever. So like, Don Henley, The Boys of Summer. He didn't write that song, but the idea of like out on the road today, I saw a deadhead sticker on a Cadillac. Like that tells an entire story in a handful of words. I mean, Lil Wayne, one of my favorite lines is real G's move in silence like lasagna. Like that's hilarious (laughs) to me. Like real G's move in silence like lasagna because it's a silent G. He was somewhere and writing down. He's like, yeah, I want to do a lasagna line. Like I want to, you know, I don't know if I'm a lyrics guy. So lyrics like a G love song or lyrics like Lil Wayne. I collect ideas. I'm a big believer in curating ideas. I don't believe in writer's block. I believe in idea bankruptcy. So I'm constantly, I've had almost 1200 ideas this year. I keep track of them. I write them down in notebooks. And so that's how I'm able to, I've written seven books in the last 11 years. Like that's how I'm practicing being prolific. Like prolific is never an accident. You sound like Michael Keaton's character in Night Shift, by the way, where he carries around that tape recorder and says, uh, I'm an ideas man. Instead of making tuna salad, feed mayonnaise to tuna, you know, like. Does he end up well in that movie or is he weird in that movie? You know, speaking of dad references, that movie came out yeah. probably about 39 years ago. So I'd have yeah, to Yeah, I don't know that I've again. seen it. How old are you? I'm 52. 52. Okay, I'll be 46 next week. You don't have to get a gift, but Legos. I'm a big, I like Legos. You know, so. you mentioned your birthday. I will come back to your birthday, but let's keep yeah. on ideas here. John Mayer advises me that I'm bigger than my body. You advise me that I'm bigger than my brain. What do you mean by that? I mean that you get to make a choice. I think a lot of people think that because they had a thought, it must be fact. Versus like, here's how I'd say it. An example, like fear is a feeling, afraid is a choice. Fear shows up on my doorstep and knocks and maybe rings the doorbell and is really loud. It's like, hey, we need to shut things down right now. We need to focus on this. And then I have a choice to go, hey, come on in. Like, let's have a cup of coffee. Let me entertain you for the next six hours. You want to move in to the guest room versus going, wait a second. This is just an intrusive thought. Like, wait a second. Like the other day I was next to an armored truck at a red light and I thought, man, I hope I don't rob that. I really hope I don't try to, I would be terrible at a getaway. Like don't, I'm tempted. And that was a thought in my head. And so imagine if I had said, I must be a bank robber because I had that thought. Like that was just an intrusive thought. So that's what I mean by you're bigger than your brain is that when your brain goes, you'll never be able to do that. Your brain probably doesn't know. Same with fear. If fear tells you, you'll never be able to do that. Fear probably doesn't know. You get to choose and go, Okay, I can't control whether or not I'm afraid. Fear shows up on its own all the time for silly things, for serious things. Where I get the choices to go, come on in. Let's spend eight hours. You're going to dominate the day. Clear my schedule. I just want to have an eight-hour coffee with this fear where you're now the star versus going, oh, yeah, I see that. I understand. I understand. I get it. Let me write this down. Let me think about it for a minute, but you don't get to change the whole day. That's what I mean by you're bigger than your brain. So there's tactics to dealing with the overthinking and you were just talking about one. Would that be the retire, replace, repeat strategy? Or Totally, totally. And I think what's interesting about that is a lot of people, even my most type A high-performing friends don't know that they get to replace. They don't get to choose their thoughts. Because like even people who lay out their clothes the night before they go to the gym because <laughs> it means they'll go, they right, don't choose yeah. their thoughts. They don't go, I have a really big negotiation coming up on Thursday. The last negotiation didn't go well. I don't want to bring that one into this one. So I'm going to choose these thoughts. When I go in, here's how I'm thinking. Here's what I'm going to be leading with. Here's the soundtracks I'm going to have on play. Your thoughts come by two ways, choice or chance. And so you go, okay, I'm going to choose these thoughts in this situation. So whether that's on stage, whether that's in a negotiation, a conversation that's challenging, thinking ahead of time, okay, what do I want to think about this? What are the thoughts I need that'll really help me kind of win this situation? I think that's such a healthy thing to do. And everyone, you know, we're recording this in December. I don't know when it'll play, but 
everyone has doing resolutions. Very few people have thinking resolutions. So what would a thinking resolution be? So a thinking resolution for me, like I've got written on my wall. Hold on, I'll pull it off. I have a note that says, ask for more. I wrote it down August 27th, 2020, because I found myself undervaluing my work in negotiations. So I knew I needed a new soundtrack. That's not sexy. That's not creative. No one listening to this right now is like, but you're a writer. You come up with hooky stuff. That's not hooky. It's not even that interesting. But for me, it's a reminder that when I'm in a business situation, going forward, I want to ask for more. So when I find myself undervaluing, acting out of fear, like, oh, this could be the last deal I ever get. Like, this could be the last one. If I say no to them, I'll never get another one. I go, oh, wait a second. I'm supposed to ask for more. So what does that look like? How do I take that thought and turn it into an action? So that's what a thinking resolution would look like. You say, okay, this thought is helpful. I'm going to actively work on this thought. This thought is not helpful. I'm going to actually work on retiring this thought. Every time it comes up, I'm going to say, no, I can't. You're not true. You're not helpful. You're not kind. I'm not listening to that one today. Since this is a common problem that people have asking for more, and that would be a whole podcast episode or a book on its own, what's a 90-second tutorial for asking for more or valuing yourself at a higher level in negotiations? Well, I mean, some of it's just doing the work up front. Like Some of it's preparing to ask for more. So knowing, okay, here's the current numbers. Here's the work it's going to take me. Here's the qualities I bring you to it. Not just asking for more because it's a feeling, but again, the whole thing is that your thoughts turn into your actions, turn into your results. So if I had the thought, ask for more, the next thing I would do is go, okay, I need some actions that are going to back that up. Okay. What am I going to need in that situation? Here's what I'm going to value. Here's what I'm going to do. So take me, I do book proposals because I write books. I have a sheet on there. It's essentially John Acuff by the numbers. And I know, okay, here's my platform. Here's my previous book sales. Here's my speaking gauges. I know in about 18 months, I'm going to do another proposal because I will have finished the two book contract I have. And I'm already working on that sheet. I want that sheet to be amazing. I got 18 months. You better believe I'm going to grow each of those numbers. So some of it is not just having the feeling or the thought. Thoughts isolated by themselves aren't helpful. That's why people don't like mindset books. Most mindset books are like, just put it in the universe. The universe will take care of you. No, it won't. The universe doesn't care about you. Like the universe is busy jamming boats in the Suez Canal. So what I like to do is go, this thought becomes this action. And then I'm going to get a result out of it. Same with me with public speaking. I didn't just think, I think I could be a public speaker because that's not enough. I worked on that. I thought that. I believe that soundtrack. But then I did a million reps of public speaking. Then I did all the small events. Then I stayed in all the small hotels. I put in the work and in the actions to hopefully then get to the results. That's what I mean by asking for more. Thoughts, actions, results. And along those lines, and circling back to what we were talking about just a few minutes ago, what would you tell to a person that wants to make a change in a career that feels they're doing the wrong thing, but that their soundtracks are telling them you can't do it. It's not practical. You're not the person to do that thing. Read Do Over. I wrote a book called Do Over about career transition. And it's so tactical and so practical. So one, I would say read do-over. And if you told me, well, I don't want to read a book about career transition, I'd say, well, you you really don't want to transition your career. Cool. (laughs) Like if you don't want to invest X amount of dollars in two hours, like it's not that big of a deal. You must already like your job. Cool. Like that's what I would say there. The second thing I'd say is don't force it. I think that we tend to force career transition before we're ready. In the same way that somebody goes to me, okay, John, I want to write a book. And this job is getting in the way of me being a writer. The next thing I'd say is I'd go, okay, tell me about when you write. Do you write in the morning before work? Do you write during your lunch break? Do you write at night? Like, do you skip TV and write at night? Do you write on the weekends? Do you write on Sunday? And if you said no to those questions, you don't want to be a writer. You want to have the title of writer. It's a sexy title. I get it. But you're not doing the work. If you're not making use of the 10 hour of edge time you have right now, why do you think the 40 hours is going to change things? I like to do the side hustle first and then go. So if you said, I want to change jobs, I want to change careers, I would say, cool, let's figure out what that looks like. I want you to start taking notes about what you don't like at your job and what you do like. Because the next place you go to, I want you to have those notes. You're in the middle of a research project. Congratulations. Like, Let's figure that out. Let's do some tactical things versus just going, oh, I hate my job. I don't know what I want to do, but it's not this. So I'll just quit without a plan. Like, I don't like that conversation at all. Yeah. And by the way, and if you want to be a writer, how do you feel about the concept of sitting by yourself at a computer for eight or 12 hours a day? The best work is created in solitude. Again, eight to 12 hours, at least put in half an hour. Whatever. Like, test it out. Right. Test well, that's it what out. I'm saying. You think it's going to be one way and it turns out to be completely different. I mean, every dream job is a myth to a degree. I've yet to meet somebody who has a dream job where it's like, 
it's running in a field with a ribbon. Like my job has really challenging parts that are really humbling. Before I had this job, I might've thought I get a cabin and a dog named Shep and he wears a (laughs) bandana and like falcons land on my arm in the Pacific Northwest when I write books. But like that is not the reality. That is funny. Salmon leap from the stream in front of your log cabin. Yeah, right. And I catch him by my hand and I go, are you ready for dinner? And then I throw him back in because I'm eating a vegan diet. That's right. All right. So you mentioned your other book, Do Over, Make Today the First Day of Your New Career. You have another one called Finish, Give Yourself the Gift of Done. And we're talking about your book right now, Soundtracks, The Surprising Solution to Overthinking, is part of your mission giving the reader permission to live and work more authentically? Yeah. I don't believe in the idea of you can be anything you want. I don't think that's true. There have been 10 people in the NBA, in the history of the NBA, my height, 10. So (laughs) I don't like- Which is what for the record, please? Five, seven and a half. When you're this height, the half matters. Yeah. So I don't believe the whole, you can be anything you want. That's not true. What I believe is you can be the best version of yourself. And so that's what I like to help people with is to go- okay, well, what does that look like? What is that for you? You have permission to do that. It's going to take a lot of work, but it's going to be work that feels different than pushing in the wrong direction. The wind will be at your back. For me, I love to help people who are stuck because I've been stuck. And I remember sitting in the parking lot of a job I didn't want to go into, listen to Jimmy Eat World, The Middle, (laughs) which is definitely about a sophomore girl in high school. And I was like, this song's for me. And it's very clearly like, you just need a little time, little girl. Like they couldn't be more explicit about who the audience is. And I was like, I don't even care. This is about a corporate copywriter and I got a dream. So I love helping people that are stuck because I think life is too long to be stuck. People often say it's short, but life is long when you feel stuck. I was hoping that in the next few minutes before we wrap up, you're going to at least incorporate a fastball and Marcy playground reference. The way? Yeah. <laughs> I listened to that song yesterday. And it's so funny you mentioned that. I'm listening to fastball the way yesterday. It's such a great song. It makes me happy every time I hear it. Marcy playground. Like that was a little moodier. That one's a little like you're writing poetry. Yeah. Somebody dumped you. All right. Your birthday's coming up. What do you want to be doing better in 365 days than you are doing right now? Oh, I actually have a pretty good list doing better transitions. I'm recognizing that a lot of my time gets stolen during the transitions. What do I mean by that? So let's say I go for a run. I go into the bathroom. I turn on the shower and I have my phone. If my phone is in the bathroom, I'll stand at the sink while the shower runs for like 10 minutes, just scrolling stuff. So I want to do better at the transition moments. So going, okay, as I transition between tasks or whatever, that my phone isn't present because The only hack I've found to control my phone is to not be near my phone. I want to be better at transitions. I'm doing more uh, weight workout. Once you get to your mid-40s, muscle mass just leaves your driveway every morning. It's like, see you later. So I'm transitioning from running a ton to I have a friend who owns a CrossFit gym and he came up with a program for me. So I'll probably be a CrossFit expert real soon. I'll be one of those people that's like, what? Do you have a kettlebell? I have one. So I want to do that. I have probably about 20 goals that I kind of do American Idol audition style down to a handful every year. But I start collecting them, I would say, mid-October in my notebook. And then by the end of the year, I'm pretty dialed in on here's the things I want to try to accomplish. How do you whittle those down? What are the metrics you use? If you sit with an idea for very long, you'll recognize you don't care about it. Write something down in October and then you put it into a document like, oh, why did I even put that's dumb. I don't know what I was thinking that day. This doesn't matter to me. But then I'll also go, which will have the greatest impact this year? So I know that getting in shape will have an impact on other goals. Like it'll have an impact on my sleep. It'll have an impact on how I feel. It'll have an impact on how I work. So I might prioritize that one. I know, for instance, that writing a book will have a longer impact than doing something online that's temporary. You know, a book has a longer kind of tail, if you will. So I'll try to pick goals that have greater kind of horizons to them. And then I'll also go, is this realistic? Have I tried this before? Did I write this down because I think I'm supposed to have that kind of goal? What season is this then? So I'll ask a bunch of different questions. And then the other thing is I'll learn throughout the year. You know the least about your year in January. So it's insanity to make all your resolutions as if they're concrete in January. You don't know what March looks like. Last year, a third of my business came from doing challenges. I did all these online challenges where I I taught all these online students. In January, when the team and I met, we didn't even know challenges were going to be part of the year. In March, a friend of mine named Paige was like, hey, have you ever thought about this? It was a third of the business. 
So imagine if in January I said, no, no matter what happens going forward, we can't, we've already locked it in. And then in March, I'm like, no, I'm sorry. So I think that's the other thing is that you're learning all year and you're changing, you're tweaking and you're iterating. That's kind of how I think about goals. And I have a podcast called All It Takes is a Goal. How about that? All It Takes is a Goal, the podcast from John Acuff. I haven't interviewed LL Cool J, but someday. Someday. Maybe you can get Moby and some other folks too. I got John Acuff, and I'm pretty excited about that. So thanks for joining. Uh, We want to help you with John Acuff by the numbers. Where can our listeners find out more about you? The podcast would be a great place to start. I think the interview with Greg Sankey, the commissioner for the SEC, the football conference, not the financial one, was super fun. I think that one's encouraging. So yeah, all it takes is a goal. And then I'm online just about everywhere. And if you want to read the first chapter of the book, it's soundtracksbook.com. Awesome, John. It's been a pleasure talking to you, man. Yeah, super fun, dude. Thanks, Paul. Well, I really enjoyed talking to John. I think he's a very smart guy who comes at some big problems in life with a sense of humor and some very useful tactics with which to tackle them. So thanks for the conversation, John. And I recommend each of you check out his work. I've got links to his podcast, All It Takes is a Goal, in the show notes and to his website where you can check out more about his work. Let's get to the takeaways. My first one is success or a story. I like this outlook that for things that you deal with in life, if they go right, it's a success. And if it doesn't go right, it's a story. And even if you're not looking for material for your comedy act or for your corporate speaking, it's at least a lesson that you can learn from and perhaps regale your friends over pigs in a blanket and a Sprite Zero cranberry. Let's see. It starts early. These these soundtracks start early. As John mentioned, he's got a book coming out, Soundtracks for Teenagers. And man, that sounds like a really, like a home run of a book. I'll be sure to give you a heads up when that book comes out because I know a lot of you are dealing with teenagers. I think helping them recognize in themselves their soundtracks and listening for them as parents can help us build better relationships and boost our teenagers' confidence when it needs to be boosted. Lastly, what am I willing to put up with? I think this is one of the great signposts in life that we should all look out for and find those places in life where the stuff that we have to do to do the things that we're trying to do. The nonsense doesn't feel like nonsense. The bullshit doesn't feel like bullshit. I think this is a really important lesson that can guide us to what we're supposed to be doing because if we have a real emotional, heartfelt connection to the work we're doing, the details don't matter. Long drives don't matter. Staying up late to work on a project doesn't matter because it's, it is an expression of who you are and your values. Yes, it's work, as we discussed, but it's work that is so worth doing that you don't mind some of the sticky parts of it. Oh, bonus one. Life is long when you're stuck. If you're stuck, if you feel stuck, you're going to be kind of unhappy. But I think being stuck is a choice, as he mentioned. And if you think you're stuck in your job and you think you'd rather have a dream job, consider what he said about you know starting at the margins. Like If you really want to be a writer, start writing an hour a week. You've got an hour a week, no matter what you're doing. And if you can't find it, you really don't want to be a writer. Take it from somebody that's bailed on the corporate world and gone into the creative world. It's not going to be perfect, your dream job, and you can start before you give everything up in its pursuit. Maybe you're feeling stuck for some other reason. I highly recommend John's work. Check out some of his other books to help you think through some of the stuckness in your life. All right, lots of great shows coming up in 2022. We'll be back next week with Ken Honda, the Japanese author of Happy Money. Ken has sold over 8 million books worldwide. He's a very wise and interesting fella. I know you'll enjoy that conversation. Look forward to being with you in a week. Until then, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.